Hello friends, this is episode 31 and my guest today is Ben Lee. We recorded this interview just before he was due to come to Australia and I had every intention on releasing it while he was here. But alas, things don't always happen the way one plans. But it's a fun chat and I hope you like it. I found it a little bit hard not to just want to talk to him about the 90s. Because, you know, he was living all of our dreams at that time. Um, But we talk about some of the really cool and exciting things he's doing now. Um, He is really busy and someone who has a lot of super interesting projects all the time. I wish I could have talked to him for another five hours. Also, this is really special. Our friend Kathy Glasby did the artwork. Kathy was part of Modular Records when Ben and I were both signed to the label back in the early 2000s. Uh, ben and I talked a bit about Steve Pav in the interview, who was the head of that label and also ran Fellaheen, um, which Ben was signed to when he first started. Anyway, I love that Kathy did the picture um, as she's, you know, part of both of our history. And of course, she's a beautiful illustrator, having worked for pretty much everyone. Uh, Mambo, all the festivals. She's done books. She's pretty incredible. Um, All of the Hearsay illustrations can be seen on Instagram at Hearsay Podcast or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Rate and subscribe if you feel like it. Please enjoy the podcast episode number 31, my fifth Ben, Ben Lee. Hey, thank you so much for doing my podcast, Ben. Happy to. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you making the time in a very busy phase. You're just about to come to Australia. Yeah, it's really busy. (laughs) You're just about to start your um, Radnor and Lee tour. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, but you know what they say, like if you want something done properly, find someone busy to do it. Uh, Yeah. Because there is something about, in general, people who learn how to be effective and get the yes. job done and just get it finished and not complain. And, you know, it's a certain skill Absolutely. set. Yeah. Yeah. Busy people get more done. I have to say you are, um, you have been one of the most organized guests that I've had. I've normally people cancel at least three times before we find a time. Oh, and okay. You were just like this day, this time done. Well, I felt bad because <laughs> we'd been it. in exchange about it. And then I just totally dropped the ball with the messages on Facebook. Cause that I get confused with where I was messaging with someone these days. It's like, Oh know. yeah. There's too so, many methods, yeah, yeah. too many avenues. But here we are. <laughs> so we're doing Yay, it. We yeah. did it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, how's everything going? I feel like you're one of the busiest people. I, you have so many projects all the time. Yeah, well, you, you know, I had a realization many years ago. I mean, firstly, like, I just came out of that idea of, like, you know, say, like, Half a Cow label or something. Like, you played in 10 bands, you put out lots of records. Yeah. Like, like that to me was very natural. But, but then as I even got more, you know, professional, I guess, it became also about that, in terms of, I guess, just the reality that a lot of your projects are going to just disappear into the ether. That's the nature of creativity. So life is about having multiple horses in the race. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you got to have like four or five horses in the race and hope that one of them squeaks through. You know? <laughs> you yeah, know? many fingers in pies and maybe exactly. one of them will be delicious. Exactly. How do you feel about the new album? I mean, it got released late last year. Do you feel like you're already on to the, to the next project and well, now you have to sort of promote this one? Uh, I mean, everything has become more fluid these days in terms of, I think, the conversation around music and around artists is less geared towards the new release. And, you know, it's an ongoing process of releasing material. So, yeah, Josh and I are about to start recording our next album. I'm just finishing. already. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we made that one over a year ago. Um, But I'm just finishing this album I've made of this musical I wrote, Beers for Beer, with Tom Robbins. So, that's I'm, right. I've got this album, like literally finishing the last thing on it tomorrow. Um, so it, it, it's like that, you know, you just keep pushing forward and making stuff. And But playing live and talking to people, it doesn't have to be a chore that's connected to promotion. It can just be another opportunity to connect. So I try and look at it that yeah. way. I find it really lovely, the videos that I've seen of you and, and Radna it just looks like you're two friends having a really nice time. Well, we, we put on a very good act. Yeah, I yeah. feel like that's what everyone should aspire to in music, like just ha- mates having a sweet time together. Well, it's so weird because we really did start this as like this obscure little side project we were just doing and it took on a bit of a life of its own and the phone started ringing and at that point we made a very early resolution which was we would only do things that sounded fun yeah, and that's a great that's a great rule. Well, it that's just what everyone like, should do. You know, none of us know the absolute ultimate truth of existence, right? But we figure like you can have a lot worse compasses than fun. Like fun Absolutely. is fun is a reasonably reliable compass. It, it'll get you through. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what we try and use. <laughs> I love it. Hey, um, can you tell me a bit more about your thing that you're doing with Tom Robbins? I love his books. Yeah, he's amazing. So. Yeah, probably about um, almost eight years ago, uh, I stumbled onto this novella of his called Beers for Beer. And yeah. uh, it's it's a children's book for grown-ups, a grown-up book for children. And um, it's, uh, it's really about consciousness and about why do people try and alter their consciousness and about childhood and the mystery of existence and all of those psychedelic things that readers of Tom Robbins and probably people who like my music sort of connect to. And, um, so yeah, it, it's, it, we've worked on it. I mean, in various forms on and off for better part of the last decade and where it's at now is re- I've recorded an album of the songs and, um, right. we're kind of using that as a way of trying to create momentum around the show. So the album of the songs, the cast, it's an amazing cast. It's, um, Laura Silverman, Paul F. Tompkins, Busy Phillips, John Cryer, Belinda Carlisle, Rose Byrne, and a couple of other uh, musicians. Um, Amazing. But so the goal was really to do this like cast recording of a show that has never been on stage. And um, yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, it's kind of like build it and they will come. <laughs> do you reckon it'll ever be a show, like a stage show? What I realized at a certain point of the process was that that is so far out of my control. Like, barring like mortgaging my house and just like going, let's put it up in a theater, like, which is just insane. <laughs> yeah. um, there's really nothing I can do. That that relies on someone seeing the vision of it. What I sure. do know how to do is make a good record, you know? So I decided that was going to be my way of like keeping my side of the street clean and like controlling my destiny. 
and I was going to make a great record and we'll see what happens after that. It's, I, I really don't know. I hope so. <laughs> and did you, but did you work with Tom yeah. on the songs or well, yeah, what, Tom, what was the process? Tom wrote the script, they call it the book in musical theatre and we collaborated on a few of the lyrics and he sort of really edited my lyrics um, and it was just amazing. Like if I think about the man and the artist I've become in the last eight years, I was just thinking about this the other night, how much working with Tom and being mentored by Tom has kind of turned me into who I am today. Because uh, so lovely. I think, you know, like I look at my daughter and she's growing up in a house with two artists. So yeah. a lot of her lessons about what it means to be an artist with integrity, they're really coming through the way she's being parented. Uh, I, I didn't grow up with artists. So you need to find these artistic parents um, to help you become the artist you want to become. And Tom has definitely been like that. You know, it's like a very cross-generational collaboration. I mean, he's 86. Wow. So it just is remarkable to have that wisdom, to be able to access that wisdom. Yeah, for sure. And perspective. Yeah. Did you feel like you had artistic parents outside of your parents when you were growing up a bit as well? I mean, th there are ones that came and went, like school teachers now and then who took an interest in my creative development. And then people like Steve Pav, you know, who we both know, yeah. who like who yeah. um, really uh, nurtured my career and stuff. But at the same time, Pav was like 27 when that's I was right. a teenager. Like that's not, a, that's not a mature parent, you know, to a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> so it's great. I love the He's guy. He's not 87. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love the guy. But, but like you really need that another generation because those yeah. are kind of uh, – that's what gives the perspective, I think, to teach sort of some of the big lessons. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that. I think I saw Steve Pav in that way when I was young too because I think my band got signed to Modula when I was like – which his record label, for those who don't know, Steve Pav started – well, he started Fellaheen, uh, the record label that you were signed to when you were first starting out, yeah. right? Yeah. But, yeah, I remember him calling me at home when I was living with mum and dad and going like, what what music are you into? Like, who should I bring out? You know, he was so connected with – with the the young kids so to speak and really interested in what they had to say and did you feel like that as well with Pav like you had a voice with him um yeah oh man I mean you know it's so it's so mysterious because I mean I think about this with my career I was very lucky in that the cultural atmosphere when I was coming up same same as you I think um was more geared towards intention and concept rather than style. So for someone like me who had a lot of chutzpah and attitude, but didn't yet have technical <laughs> proficiency, I could actually get my foot in the door. And obviously then you have to develop the skill set and everything. But, but Pav was kind of like a gatekeeper of that, of style, you know what I mean? Of, um, of underground music. And, and I, I don't know, like you, you tend to think that like what I've seen of successful people in my life is that opportunity finds them one way or another. So I tend to think that like what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview, like learning how to be an effective human being, an effective creator, that would have led to opportunity coming in some form. But yeah. but I, I think in music, had it not been for him, I, I really don't know if that would have, um, if those doors would have opened. Yeah, I don't know. I It's weird to think about that time now. I, I, th I was thinking about this a lot recently about you know, back in the early 90s or mid 90s, there were so many bands, like you said, that weren't particularly 
like proficient at music, but they had this certain style and this certain um, musical style, like, for example, like Pavement or Steve Malcolmus, that guy, is, you can't say that guy is an incredible singer. Yeah. He's not like a classical singer. Um, but but so they were so popular back then because of the, you know, that's that vibe. And I, I kind of miss that now. I think that's aged really well. Like, I, I think there are some people like, like Malcolmus is a good example. Like, I actually think had he been coming up in the 80s or 70s, he would have still done really well because yeah, the aesthetic might the, have been different. Not but not the his, 2000s. Yeah, maybe not. I, I don't, it's so weird. Like, cause do you remember like in, um, it was probably like 2000, 2001, when everything went boy bands and, yes. and all of that. And <laughs> it's suddenly like indie rock became just like an abomination. And yeah. you looked at like Super Chunk and were just sort of like, what are they still doing? Like there couldn't be anything <laughs> less relevant. <laughs> Um, yeah. and, and everything was electronic and like of, of sort of alternative music, it was like Bjork, you know, or tricky or, um, you know, but then everything comes around again. And now you see a band like Superchunk who are really like, they're like a legacy to a new generation of underground bands. So I think so much of it is like Andy Warhol talked about that. He said, you know, do what, keep doing what you're doing and fashion will come around to you. Because if you if you get too obsessed with chasing style, and I've done it, like I've done things with going like, oh, this is the cool production style. This is, and it ends up not mattering in the long run. In the long run, it's just about like, did you have, were you playing the long game? Did you have a vision artistically and in terms of what you were sharing from your psyche and from your heart that actually had some substance to it over the long term? Absolutely. Did you have a vision all along? I think I did in a sense that, um, I believed in a certain type of transparency. Um, I always believed that if I was honest, it would be interesting. Um, and it doesn't always mean it's amazing, but it is interesting to hear people be really honest, whether you agree with them or not. Um, and I also believed, I, and I really do believe in the transformation of a human being. I think music's part of that. Um, I've never been cynical about the ability of human beings to change and of art to change them and honest communication to change them. And I think that is at the essence of everything I've ever done, whether it was like, I love you. I want you to fall in love with me. Why am I lonely? You know, as a teenager, that was still the ability to, I, I believe that by sharing that there was a chance that um, I might sort of like rock the boat in my favor with the girl, you yeah. know? So it's Did like, it I, work? I'm sure <laughs> at some work? points, some points for sure. Um, so I think it's kind of like I, I, I just believed in the capacity of human beings to change. And that is really, I think, at the heart of everything I've done. Do you find that – so you've done so much of your growing up and different phases of your career publicly. Do you ever wish that you could have done some of your growing up in private? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, but the funny thing about it is with like what we perceive as mistakes – we usually go through periods of like intense embarrassment right after they happen for a certain period until they're yeah. processed. And then they sort of become funny. And then we can like joke yeah. about it for a few <laughs> years. And then we kind of become grateful for our own silliness or irreverence or immaturity or whatever it was. So I find these cycles, like the things I'm most in agony about are probably things that happened in the previous five years. Before that, I've sort of made some kind of peace with them. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, you can't really like, like you said, people change and you, you know, and also things get so misconstrued. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about so many things because you have, you have so many 
things that have happened to you. <laughs> you have, <laughs> you've led, you've led quite a life. Um, and now on my deathbed, I will offer perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of death, you have had some experience with being like a death doula. Yeah, well, that I really initially got interested in through my interest in psychedelics because I felt that um, in order to fully step into the psychedelic experience, you have to let go, right? Like, yeah. like even people that have on the most recreational level experienced psychedelics, uh, know th- they know that. You can't grip to your sanity. You have to be willing no. to float down the river, you know, <laughs> like float yeah, downstream. Absolutely. And, and yeah. so... So I realized that like this is like the skill that the Buddhists and all these different people have been talking about for for a long time, which is the ability to die. And then it became interesting to me, like, is this a skill set? If so, can we learn it? If so, can we help other people do it? Because I do find that people that can, that have developed the capacity to let go, you know, into the psychedelic experience, into meditation, into the chaos of life, they tend to be kind of happy quite a lot. You know, well, it's a dangerous line because they, they either go mad, uh, they go mad because they don't exercise the right to fight back often enough or fight for their own sanity. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so I think that is really the science of learning how to die is, you know, there's a lyric I really love by the greats where um, patient says, I'm two kinds of right. I surrender and I fight. And, and I think that is the essence of learning how to die. That learning when to let go and learning when to fight back. What's your training then with um, being, did you have any training? Yeah, yeah, I did some, I did some various trainings. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's funny how trainings are so funny because like, I feel like people are obsessed with trainings. They get all these certificates sure. and hang them on the wall <laughs> and they feel really good about it. And then, and there's also people who like, they don't have any confidence unless they've done a training. They're like, yeah. oh, I'm getting really interested in organic foods. I'm going to become certified as someone that knows <laughs> how to juice organic foods. You know, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's just education though, you know. So, so yeah, I did, I did a few courses and things and I did some volunteering at hospice. But I never intended for that to be a profession. I intended that to become part of – it's almost like part of my job as a musician, right? Like right. what I wanted to do was I wanted to be able to stand on a stage – and acknowledge that my audience is dying, and so am I, Jesus. and so am I, and here we are. What can yeah. we do, right? What can we do? All we can do is, like, learn how to be together, be present together, let go, let's hang out. I mean, it's That's like you can say – such a lovely idea. Well, you can say it in the most crass terms. It's like, let's party. Um, but, but it's sort of like, let's relax and acknowledge that we are mortal beings, and to some degree, I think that's sort of what I was exploring and what I was studying. Did you feel uncomfortable with death before you did it? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know because, I mean, I, I sort of think we're all really uncomfortable with death. We're either, we might not be aware of how terrifying it is. Uh, that's why I think psychedelics are so interesting because they force you to confront these sort of latent fears that you didn't even realize you're carrying around. Uh, I mean, I I would sort of question anybody who doesn't approach the vastness and the obliqueness of the unknown with some degree of terror, because it's like not it's not human. Like like there's we have a fear response in us towards the unknown for survival reasons. Like we we're not really meant to go wandering down dark alleys or wandering into the forest at night where there's tigers wandering around. Um, it, it's so that we survive, right? So there's like a natural feeling of like, ooh, that is scary. But it's something about like, even so, 
Like, I think as artists, we face this all the time. Like once we make a piece of work and put it out into the world, it's going to something terrifying is going to happen. I mean, we're either going to be like vastly disappointed um, or we're <laughs> going to be judged or we're going to be critiqued sure. or, you know, yet we, we tend to learn how to do it anyway. And that's really, I think, what learning how to die is about, like learning how to move forward despite the terror. Yeah, that's kind of a nice way to put it. It's funny, I was talking to my mum last night. So my mum is a um, grief counsellor. Oh, so cool. she works in death and dying all day. And um, I was telling her that I was going to talk to you this morning and she said, oh, you should tell him that um, – because she works in this uh, hospital in Melbourne and they had a, like a session with all the people that, that work there or work in the, the unit that she works in and they put on your song, We're All In This Together, yeah. and they all sang it together. She's Aww. like, oh, you should tell him that. Oh, that's it's cool. Part of, the, part of the grief and dying is, is like this beautiful soundtrack of your song. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might like that. Excellent. Um, so can I go back to like when you first started, back in the day when you, you can first try. started? Yeah, yeah <laughs> if you remember. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Do you remember what? what you're into when you first wanted to play music? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I come from being into like rock and metal and stuff like Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and Skid Row and uh, very aggressive uh, performance oriented, you know, stuff. Um, and then it got into like all these local Sydney, you know, Australian bands like the Hard Ons and the Welcome Mat and Smudge and Mass Appeal and the Hellmen and yeah. then, you know, like Nirvana and Sonic Youth. And, and I think I was just into like, it, it was so demonstrative. What I was into was either about, it was about things that grabbed your attention, either because they were loud, because they were brash, because they were vulnerable to the point of embarrassment. Um, I was not into subtlety. Uh, I think subtlety kind of came later. So in a way it worked to my benefit because to be 14 and start a band and everything, it's like you've really got to make a noise. Uh, so I think I just, and even our band was called Noise Addict. Like I loved, I loved things that disturbed me in a sense, you know, or disturbed, <laughs> disturbed the peace, disturbed the status quo. Yeah. So, and, but now you've sort of talked about being a massive fan of, of pop music. Do you feel like you were really anti-pop music back then? If you're talking about like highly produced sort of pop songs? Uh, I've gone through a lot of phases with that. Like I, I, I think I went through a phase after Awake is in Your Sleep where I was like really seeing the potential of mainstream success. And, um, but I don't know, like uh, the way it shakes out, it's like a real journey. I mean, do you ever watch, um, do you ever watch that show Crashing, the Pete Holmes show? Yeah. So, so you know, have you seen that episode in the second season where him and his girlfriend are in their hotel room at the conference and they have that? I don't think I have seen uh, that. It's really interesting. They have this argument because he basically says she's not sucking up to the industry enough. That's why she's <laughs> not getting booked. And he's kind of like, you're being deliberately difficult. And what's the, why did you even come here to, you know, if you're going to be like that? And she says, well, you're being, you're be basically being a sellout. And I think what's so great about this episode is everyone I know in show business, this is an eternal conversation going on in their minds. It's like, yeah. if you're not going to play the game, why are you even here? You know what I mean? To some degree, there's got to be some compromise, right? I mean, a pop song is compromise. 
uh, it's saying, okay, I'm going to be catchy. I'm going to kind of put some sugar in it and everything, make it danceable. Um, but, but at the same time, it's like, if you don't give, if you don't offer something that is unique and uncompromising, it just gets lost in the wash of just information and content being created on a daily, daily level. So, um, so as far as where I'm at now, it's kind of interesting because with Radner and Lee, you know, we, we've got sort of a thing that's happening. Um, it's not like it's in the charts or anything, but we're getting to tour around the world and people seem to be connecting with it. And I had this moment on stage. We have this song on our album because it's yours once you give it away. And we, we, we generally end our set with it. And I was, um, we were playing it and I got a little choked up. Like we were in Sao Paulo. There's 1,100 people singing it back to me. And I'm potentially That's having crazy. like, I'm having like our, my biggest kind of in a way commercial success in many years with something that was meant to be a side project and just meant to be fun. <laughs> and the song, the message of the song hit me in the heart, you know, it's yours once you give it away. And I got choked up. And even to the degree that I'm kind of like, it's funny, like my role in Radnor and Lee, like we're equals, but I like to stand like a little bit back and I like to let Josh <laughs> be the front man. Um, I like yeah. to do a lot of the harmonies. If there's silence on stage, I like him to talk first. Um, and it's almost like I'm, I've kind of like, worked through like and same with Tom Robbins and producing Jill Sobiel like I've gone on a big journey of working just slightly behind really talented people and it's like I've given away a bit of my attachment to needing to be front and center and in Absolutely. that there's like a new kind of type of success that I'm feeling and it's very it's interesting so I don't know pop music what is pop it's just whatever's popular um I, I don't feel the inherent optimism in popular culture that I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But I also feel for me, there's a new relationship to success that's starting to come in that is based on just being myself. And I, I, I'm liking that. What What does your kid listen to? Is that like a scary thing? The messages that the youth might, might get from from current popular culture? I think it is, but my daughter, like, she's so sensitive in a good way. Like, I was wearing a half a cow t-shirt, and she said, that's sad because it has half oh. a cow on it. Yeah. <laughs> but my daughter, so she likes the, the Greatest Showman soundtrack at the moment. That's a big one for her. Yeah. Um, she likes Taylor Swift, but not the more current stuff. Like, she likes, like, Love Story and all that, you know. Okay. Um, so she's got just, like, a sensitivity to her that she doesn't like anything too aggressive. So we'll see if that stays. Oh, that's that lovely. Yeah. Do you worry about that though? The messages that that your kid might get from from artists like I don't know, I don't even know what what is dangerous at the moment. But I suppose some of the new Taylor Swift stuff is quite like sexual and yeah. I mean, I don't know though if it's I don't know if the messages are going to be more important that come from pop culture than that come from her friends and her peer group. Like I think at the end of the day, if you're a kid going to school in a Western country and you're you know it's like you're going to hear everything on the schoolyard. Um, sure. So, you know, for me it's all about trying to just give her the tools of discernment and help her kind of just decide for herself what's right and what's wrong. Do you think having a family has changed the way you look at songwriting and the industry in general? It's hard for me to say. I don't know about with songwriting. I know that in general it's like, <laughs> you know, there's a there's an expression in Scandinavia that Lou Barlow told me, which is that... um a baby is born with a loaf of bread underneath it. And what it means is <laughs> that is like, that? it means like a baby brings kind of like perspective and abundance into our house. And I know quite a lot of artists like Luke Steele um, or hard old man river. Like I know quite a lot of artists 
that had their biggest success right when they became parents. And it's almost like energetically, and my manager's told me this too, like he's seen it a lot, because it's like your your priorities shift and suddenly you have something that's non-negotiable. So it's like, it's, you know, it's the rule of seduction. When you stop wanting it as badly, it'll come to you. It's yours once you give it away, right? So when you have a family and suddenly there's this thing, this uh, unit that you would lay down your life for, um, uh, rather than just needing to be successful in your career, suddenly I think you become a lot more attractive to the industry. <laughs> <laughs> like when you stop looking for a partner, suddenly they exactly, appear. Exactly. Yeah. You said um, in an interview that becoming a father has been a form of ego death. Is that something that y- it was very apparent? Yeah, it's just because you just have to get used to being annoyed all the time. You know, I, I don't mean angry. I mean, just interrupted. Like, like yeah. <laughs> it's literally like I used to feel guilty about it. And I was like, what do you mean? Of course, this is irritating. It's like literally <laughs> everything I start doing, if she's awake, she will interrupt. Um, but once you get a sense of humor about it, you go, oh, this is the deal. Like, this is the surrender. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to tell you that one of my all-time favorite, actually two of my all-time favorite songs were songs that you wrote with Evan Dando. Oh, cool. I wrote for Evan Dando, All My Life and Hard Drive. Yeah, yeah, cool. I love those songs so Aww. much and I remember, you know, putting them on all my mixtapes uh, <laughs> or mix CDs at that point in my life. I know those songs have been kind of durable. You know, they like they, I keep so seeing, lovely. I remember a few years ago, someone sent me a copy of um, Bruce Springsteen's, uh, the mix, the playlist that he put on before he went on stage every night. And I can't remember if it's hard driver all my life, but one of them was on it. And um, it's just, it's weird, hey, it's like the power of a good song. That that kind yeah. of thing gives me a lot of confidence or, or like um just faith in the power of a song because that record was not a hugely successful record, yet, no. yet those songs have been durable and continue to find an audience. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's lovely. And also Evan's voice is yeah. just, just golden. You exactly, know? yeah. I wanted to ask you what your relationship is like with streaming music because things have changed so much. Um, since you started making music to now, do you miss the way it used to be or are you feeling like you're embracing how it is now? I mean, I like uh, making albums. So really the trend is moving towards making songs, but I don't, I, I feel like that is, that that ship has sailed in terms of adapting to that. Like I like albums so much and collections of songs that I'm not really interested in letting go of that model. Um, yeah. But in general, I would just say this, like, this is my attitude about it. I like making money and I don't care where it comes from. So like, so it is not my problem. Like, I think what a lot of people do is they get like super married to where their money comes from and they're like, oh my God, I used to get paid for selling albums and now I can't sell it. But what I've learned about money is that if you're a value adding person and just, you just add value, like you're perceived as being valuable, what you have to say, what you have to do, the phone will ring and someone will offer you money to do something. It may not be <laughs> anything that you ever thought about doing before, but it'll happen. So so I just like to keep the intention that like, I like making money. If the business has changed, cool, that's fine. Let it change. Um, I, I have, it would be a complete waste of energy for me to invest in trying to turn back the tides of any particular technology. Um, 
I just start paying attention to like, what are the new models? Like I'm on a social media platform on the blockchain called Steemit and that yeah. you earn cryptocurrency for posting. So I like that model. That's quite good. Cause also for um, artists, we often don't have any investments. Um, artists usually live paycheck to paycheck. And so the idea that you're building up a cryptocurrency portfolio, which is a, it's a, um, you know, the, the, I forget the term. It's like it's gaining value, right? So it's like, so we're actually like building an investment. It's like imagine you got given like one square foot of a house every month. And after two years, you had like, however, you had a little house, you know? It's like nice to work in something that appreciates in value. So so maybe that's a new model. I really don't know, but I I I kind of can't I can't spend the time thinking about it. Because I'm yeah. my, well, my interest like you're embracing is embracing the new way. Well, it's just it's survival, right? It's like you better start swimming or you sink like a stone. Well, cr- cryptocurrency it still it makes me feel like I'm a hundred. Whenever anyone talks to me about it, I just go, ah, oh, I don't know. <laughs> okay, but you know what? I, you might I don't be, understand it. You might be overcomplicating it in your head because the way the way I think about it is, um, you know, when you go to a fair, like when you're a kid, you'd buy tickets to get on the rides and everything, right? And those tickets have value in that fair, but they don't really have value outside the fair. It's a currency, but you can buy it. You can buy it with a, with dollars, right? So it's a currency that operates within a certain ecosystem and meets certain needs. Like at the end of the day, it's more functional for people to be handing tickets than for all of these different rides to have to have change and be able to break twenties and hundreds and right. Like the currency of tickets works in that ecosystem it's exactly the same with cryptos they they work in different ecosystems and have different um assets to them they're they're different there's reasons why you'd use each of them and you can get deeper into that not into into it but they're they're fun to learn about because i think we've all felt there are times when you know a different currency makes sense And, and the thing i like about it is that um you know uh, currencies so far have been They've been sort of nationally owned, bank owned systems. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you look at the funfair idea, that's got nothing to do with a country. It's just got to do with utility, like the way we want to use it. So I like the idea that um, the way we use money or what money is to us can be defined by us within the systems we're using them rather than by banks and by c- countries. That's the idea. Yeah I, yeah, I definitely like the idea of taking out the middleman, but I think yeah. the thing that freaks me out is the idea of, of that being the world's currency, like that, that that will be, you know, people talk about cash will no longer exist and and banks will no longer exist and this will be the way we live. Yeah, but you know what's weird? Like banks, yeah, but your money in the bank isn't really there anyway. Yeah, that's true. You, you've given your money to the bank and they've lent it to someone. Yeah. And it's like not That's there true. except for a number in a computer. So it's already it totally there, abstract. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> but that's the thing. Unless you're um, collecting bars of gold, yeah. um, <laughs> you really don't have any money. <laughs> I so, imagine it being in a little locker. Well, we love that. We love that thought. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had times, because you've been an artist since you were 14. Yeah. Have you ever had times in your life where you've thought, shit, I don't think I can sustain myself as an artist? Yep, totally. And and I, shockingly, uh, somewhat recently, only in the sense that I still inherently, I have expansive goals, right? 
Like I wouldn't say yet that I'm in my ideal position financially. I'm not sure. Maybe no one ever is. I don't know. But no, I don't but, think anyone is. But but I I have I have things I want. I, I'd like to spend more time in nature. I'd like to have the ability to do that. You know, um, uh, I feel like I'm working really hard. And but that's appropriate. You know, I'm 39. Um, mm. But but you do wonder. It's natural. I think it's kind of like we were talking about fear of death. Like it's the most natural thing in the world. Like fear of not having enough money or food or shelter. This is like, it's a survival mechanism, right? So for me, it's like that still comes, but I try and keep it in its place and go, you know what? That's, I'm glad you're there protecting me, but my job is to charge forward. And that's, so that's what I try and do. Yeah. I think it's, I know, I know quite a few people that have been lifelong artists and, um, you know, sometimes, I wish that I could be, but also other times like, God, it just sounds so stressful. Yeah. I mean, it's just really weird, you know, cause like you, that's why I've always liked, you know, I really like, um, uh, considering myself an entrepreneur too, because essentially like what that's about is seeing opportunity. And, mm. and I feel like musically, so like we were talking about, it was this weird, like, synergy of events that led to me kind of getting discovered by Pav, right? It was like, yes, yeah. I was writing kind of pretty good pop songs, and but I was recording them in a home recording way. And there was a cultural moment that where there were door opened to weirdos like me, right? Like it was <laughs> yeah. all the same time where it was like Connor Oberst and um, Lou Barlow and Sean Marshall and Will Oldham and Bill Callahan and all these people came out just doing their own things, right? Um, and it was kind of like, you have to have a sense of opportunity, uh, opportunism, that when you see the door open, you you seize the opportunity. And that to yeah, me is like absolutely. you have to have that entrepreneurial aspect and that leads to success too, having the courage, you know. When you first, when you first like started making records with, you know, you were working with people that were like all of my heroes, yeah. you know, you were like recording with Beastie Boys and Petra Hayden and like all these people like touring with Sebado and the Lemonheads. Did you, do you remember that time of your life and just going, what is happening? Or did you feel like it was just happening for a reason? Well, it wasn't what is happening because it was what I wanted to happen. But, yeah. it, but it was like, wow, it's happening. Yeah. Um, and I hope it continues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there is a, a degree of like amazement. Like we've all, you know, like you had a moment, right? You know, I don't know how long you've been doing this podcast for where it was just a thought and then yeah. next thing it's happening. I know I saw Courtney Barnett was on one of them. So you, you're like, yeah. you're doing it, right? And so there is, a, there is a moment where it goes from abstract thinking to material achievement. And it's marvelous, like, to look at yeah. our ability to make things happen. It's marvelous. Like, I love it. <laughs> and I, but then I also go, wow, if I could make that happen, what else can I make happen? So yeah, it's been exactly. a process for me of, like, like learning how to build things. I would really say like that has been a huge part of, you know, some of these bigger projects I've been involved in, like this musical or I did this one called Mixtape a few years ago. It's about the science of how to build things. And it's, yeah. um, it's difficult, right? That's why not everyone does it. Like, sure. like a lot of people play small because there's immense risk and disappointment and hurdles and all that when you're building big things. 
But I, I just, I, I can't help it. I'm curious. So I wanted to learn how to do it. Yeah, that's cool. But I, I think it's also like a, a matter of thinking about why you're doing things that, that makes you continue to do them. Because I think for me, like doing this podcast isn't, it's not because I really want to get anywhere with it. It's because I like doing it. And I think that's um, that's always been the case with music too. Like I've never had aspirations to, um, you know, play stadiums, for example. <laughs> like yeah, I yeah, just yeah. I, I would never do that. Like I, you know, I know that that's like yeah. I have realistic goals about music. I do it because I like it, yeah. and because I have to do it. Do you feel like that too, or do you feel like um, a bit more opportunistic about about stuff? Um, I mean, to me, they sort of go together. It's like my desire to make something and my desire to share it, they, they just go together. I don't know. That might be dysfunctional on my part. Um, <laughs> it, it might also be the product of having been in an exchange of value for longer than I haven't been. Right. So from 14, there was a channel, there was like a pipeline for me to share my ideas. So you just start thinking that that's how it goes and maybe I don't know I don't know that might be unhealthy I'm not sure but <laughs> no, I, tr I, don't I try so. and but I try and rise to the occasion and I try and go okay so you know whatever it's not like I'm the most successful artist in the world but if there's you know if on Instagram there's 10,000 people looking at what I'm doing I'm going to try and do something interesting yeah, and, cool. and it just sort of goes it's together working. it just goes yeah. together though you know what I mean like I don't think we have to be like there's this whole myth around artistry that like uh, you can't think about wanting to have an effect on the world or have an audience. Now, it's true in the sense that like the art I like best feels like the artist would have done it with or without recognition. And I am like – I'm like that, you know, because I've gone through lots of periods and made lots of projects that people haven't paid attention to and I still love them and I'm proud of them and I'm excited. But there's there's nothing wrong with – wanting people to hear what you've done or see what you've done. No, I don't think so either. But I think it's sort of, it shouldn't be the only reason. I agree with it. that. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you think that you'd still be a musician if you didn't have an audience? Well, it's like, I mean, if you're a musician, really, like you can't choose that. It doesn't mean you're doing it as your career. But yeah. I know it's funny, I really came to understand that with Josh because um, he's been learning guitar over the last year or so. And when it start, when he started, I could play guitar and he couldn't. And he said, you speak another language. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I do. I've never thought like that because I always collaborate with people that can play instruments, basically. Sure. Um, yeah. And I realized that from his perspective, there was this other language I spoke, which isn't about how successful you are or is anyone listening. It's that, like, I can do something to a room with an instrument and it might just be tucking my daughter in. I can create a peaceful atmosphere. I can wake her up and get her <laughs> excited. I can speak the language with an instrument. Um, I can do it with my voice too. Um, and that that doesn't really have much to do with how many people are listening. It just has to do with your passion for like changing the energy of a space with your that's true. You know, with your tools. I was actually just thinking about that. I went to see Robert Forster play last night from oh, cool. the Go Betweens, and he played a room. I think maybe 30 or 40 people, like a tiny little room is doing like six nights at this little place in Brisbane. And it's so amazing seeing someone who can just get up on stage and change the mood in a room. You yeah. know, someone who's yeah. so confident, who's been doing it his whole life. Um, I I just thought 
like it's so different to watching someone who's been doing it for well, a what year. I, something I learned, you know, that, like, yeah, sorry, just to interrupt for a second, just this thought came to me. Something I learned from Mike White was he said, um, like he always called gigs where there's not many people, they're character builders. Um, <laughs> because if you just play for screaming, adoring fans, you can become very sort of external as a performer. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know, you got to do those small gigs and you got to play. It's like every gig's magic, you know, and I don't care if it's like 10,000 people or 10 people. Um, I still play for myself. And um, and I think that has to be developed over years and years, probably, you know, like because in the beginning, you're so insecure. And like, what do they think? What's it going to is this gig going to be the one? Or, I don't know, whatever yeah. you're thinking. <laughs> and then you kind of just go like, you go, hey, this is me doing my thing. This is me speaking my language. And it's a type of confidence, you know, that comes over a long time. Has it been fun playing shows with someone like Josh who doesn't have that experience? Yeah, it's really good because, you know, he's got some sort of transferable skills, like just being on a stage and performing and acting and communicating. But then the music thing is like, yeah, like I know how to ride the energy of the crowd, you know? Yeah. And um, I know when you need to just jump straight into the next song, don't talk. You know, yeah. I, and I know when you need to give them a break. Like those are things you, those are the skills that you got to learn. There's just like 10,000 hours or whatever it is, you know. Um, and that's kind of the thing. There's moments I look at him and go, come on, no stories. We're going into the next song. Because you know that the audience <laughs> just wants to build. And it's like, it's really fun. Um, but then here's the innocence that comes with him being a fan of music. Yeah. Um, that he brings that on stage. And it's like, he's connected to something just equally important, which is, what is the audience like, like they're in a sense of wonder that this is even happening and he's in a sense of wonder too, you know? So it just like creates this magical combination. I really love that. I love playing with people that haven't really played to an audience before or haven't really had that experience because you can almost live their experience through them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I really wanted to talk to you about your Ayahuasca album because- okay. I hadn't heard it before, so I've been listening to lots of your music the last few weeks, and you know, I'd I'd heard like maybe a song, but I listened to the album more than than any of the other records because it's so unlike anything else that you've done before. Yeah, um, yeah thank you. It's it's really cool. It's real. I I loved it because there's lots of like you know minimalist, um, you know, breath percussion and some synths and some like weird instruments. Yeah. And some of it really reminded me of, um, have you ever listened to Max Richter's Sleep album? I haven't, but I know Max Richter. I haven't had that record. It's, um, it's my favorite. I'll send you a link. It's, okay. it's like a, like really sort of, um, meditative, um, minimalist album, awesome. but with, with really beautiful melodies and, and hooks and stuff that you can sort of fall into. Yeah. And some of this album really reminded me of that. I just wanted to ask you about your process of making that album. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was really like me and Jesse, who I made that record with, um, Jessica Chapnick-Khan, who's Apollonia. Yeah. Like, we just, like, talked a lot, you know. It's like my <laughs> collaboration so much about talking. Um yeah. We talked a lot, you know, about the experience, the ayahuasca experience and the way music could shift things and wanting to capture certain aspects of it. And, um, yeah, uh, I don't remember that a whole amount. I mean, the, the thing about making albums for me is like, I feel the urge to do it come upon me. Like it's like a fever 
And yeah. I always feel like, oh, my God, I'm doing this again. Oh, no. Because um, it's like, <laughs> what am I getting myself into? And then like halfway through, I'm like, why did I even start this? This is so hard. This is gonna be. And I, I'm so uh, just dominated by my creative impulse uh, when I'm making them that it's like in a way I don't remember making them. I mean, I do. I don't want to be like, it's not like I'm in some shamanic state, but I'm just like, I'm just absorbed with the need to do the thing. Um, and that for me was a very big need to express my wonder, my sense of admiration for that particular experience. Did you worry about alienating the part of your audience that liked the pop stuff? I think I probably should have been more worried about that at various <laughs> points in my career, but I'd have to be honest and say no. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I mean, I reckon you probably gained heaps of heaps of fans from somewhere else for that record. Okay, so look, the thing about like having a long career is what I've what I've realized is Yes, there are these moments where you cull the herd, you know, but at the same time, those are also the moments that tell the industry, I'm not going to be your bitch. And they're important moments, you know, like when absolutely when Neil Young made a weird record, when Lou Reed did, when, you know, when all, all artists do it, all real artists do it, all artists go through moments where they shake off the expectations of the world and they basically go, Hey, just a reminder, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing what I yeah. want to do. And you might look at the short-term gains of that and say, oh, their audience dropped off, they're playing smaller venues, they're not on the radio. But I guarantee you the long-term payoff is that they they carve out territory that no one messes with them anymore. Like, like I had a period in my early 20s where when I went into labels – they talked to me about like doing demos for them and they'd approve them and all that kind of thing. No yeah. one would talk to me like that now. Like, it's just like, I'm not that type of artist. I'm not, no one's going to try and pair me up with professional songwriters. No one's yeah. going to like, it's just not going to happen because, and rightly or wrongly, I've just made very clear that I'm moving to the beat of my own drum. And you got to do that a few times. And yes, it, it's sort of like back burning a fire, like it does cause some destruction in the short term, but in the long term, it's healthy. Absolutely. And you definitely gained me as a fan of that record. Oh, cool. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I think it's like funny we even talk like that as if it's our job to service an audience. Um, I just, I know that's the right commercial idea, but I don't, I inherently, I fundamentally disagree with the premise of it that I don't think going to a concert should be like going to the circus. I just don't believe it. Like, I, I, I know there's people who do it well. I went to see LCD Sound System in the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs the other night. Oh, yeah. And they did very crowd-pleasing sets. Like, for essentially sort of underground artists, they really serviced their audience. They both did, like, greatest hit sets, right? Um, I just don't, for me, I don't believe in it. Like, I, I believe that, I don't want to know what happens when I'm up on it, when I'm going to go up on stage and I want to discover something that I haven't experienced before. And I'm interested in an audience that wants to go on that journey. So do you make set lists? Yeah. There's times when I do times when I don't, it's not even about that. It's about showing up in a way with a certain flexibility that is not about serving the audience first. It's about serving my creative adventure first yeah you know if i want to do the same set every night i'm gonna do it but i'm doing it because i'm exploring something 
I'm not yeah, doing right. it because the audience wants it. Like, yeah. and I, I, I believe that the audience, it's like, as an artist, you sort of have to be like a parent. It's like your kid might want to have candy every meal, but it's your job to go, I know you want this, but trust me in the long term, it's not good for you. And that's kind of, I think as an artist, you have to say, I know you want to just hear catch my disease and rollings together over and over and over, but trust me, I promise you, you'll walk out unfulfilled if I do that. You got to trust me. You got to trust me on this, you know? And, and so I'll sing those songs, you know, I do sing those I songs. I'm not against, I'm not against performing hits, but I think ultimately the driving force of what's happening on the stage has to be that I'm chasing something that I need to find. And I think that's what the audience wants to see more than anything. Do you play Ben Lee songs on your um, Radnor and Lee tour? We've been doing like one song each. Like I'll do one of my songs and Josh does one of his. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel relevant that much. It's nice to do a little nod to it, but it doesn't yeah. feel it, do, it doesn't feel necessary. Um, so we've been talking for an hour already. I feel like that flew by. That's good. I enjoyed um, the conversation. <laughs> So so much I still want to talk to you about, but we can do part two gonna, another time. Yeah, let's. Do, <laughs> um, I I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody. Okay. My last question that will be illustrated by someone. Um, what is your strangest show experience, or just the strangest thing that's happened to you because you play music? Strangest show experience. That's right. I, I remember you saying you were going to ask this question. I didn't, and I said, <laughs> and I made note. I thought I'm going to think about that, and then I didn't. <laughs> Um, you know, when I said you were the most organized person, yeah, yeah, take except it back. For that. exactly. <laughs> I think, um, it was like, well, actually going back to the very beginning of noise addict, um, there was a moment that occurred in one of our, probably our first proper show. We were opening for Sonic Youth at Selena's and we walked out on stage and the audience looked at us like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and it almost like hardwired my brain into going this feeling. This is what I want to create. I like the feeling that no one knows what's about to happen. And, right. and it's almost like you hear comedians talk about it um, when they get their first laugh. Oh, yeah. And they get addicted. I got my first what the hell. And I got addicted. <laughs> That's a great moment. <laughs> I don't know how anybody's going to draw that, but I, I love the challenge. Well, you draw, it's very easy. You draw guys who are like three and a half feet tall, holding, <laughs> holding Gibson Les Pauls that are like bigger than them. And an audience just standing there like, uh, I don't know, like the Titanic has just hit an iceberg before we play our first chord. <laughs> Do you feel like you won the audience over? I mean, the is, beautiful is thing... Is that part of that feeling? No, I don't know, because the beautiful thing about the sense of wonder is it doesn't have to have a defined outcome. Uh, you, don't, you don't need... You've already won. At the point where the audience lets their guard down and suspends their expectations, they're kids again. They've become children again. They've opened up. You know, they died. And they so... Died. So you don't need you don't need anything to happen. It's like it's like you could just be yourself. Yeah, but don't do you have that feeling of trying to win over an audience every show? Yeah, I used to have it a lot more because I, I think it's not dignified anymore. Um, 
like, like I used to like yell at the audience. And I mean, I had like had a beer the other night with this guy, Josh Raiden. He's a songwriter. And um, he said, man, I wanted, there was an urban legend about you that at CMJ, you climbed up on these rafters and yelled at the audience. And I was like horrified to me. That was, it was so normal that I don't even think that I don't remember it. And I don't think it was a special experience. Um, Whereas now I think it's like, what I like is a musician who just keeps playing. Okay. The front of the room stays with them. And then the back room starts talking and then they went, they join back again. But I like to see, um, audience, the, the performer have some more dignity. <laughs> I, but I think that was part of that nineties era as well Is you know, like my, some of my favorite shows were like, you know, bands like girling that would, you know, Darren cross was like the, the angry little front man who would just be like, motherfuckers, like yeah, yeah, just yeah, yell yeah. at everyone to listen. And, I know. you know, I don't I, know where that came I from. I love weird. that. We must have yeah. all been yelling at our parents to some degree. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's such a good good time though. I just have such fun memories about people yelling at crowds to pay attention. Uh, I know, it's like you could, you can't get away with that now. It's just not. <laughs> no. Hey, um, thank you so much for making the time. I really okay, thank appreciate you. it. Thank you for having me. 